0: Hey, what's up, 11 o'clock? How are we doing this morning? Hey, it's good to see you. Happy World Cup Finals Day. May not be a big deal to you, but it's big to me. Hey, my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. As we go into our time of teaching, I'm excited that you're here. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. Whatever venue you're in, whether you're here in the worship center over there in the ridge, we are glad to have you. Now, before I go into the time of teaching, I too want to comment on these incredible volunteers about VBS. Now, I've always known that VBS is great, but over these last two summers, my depth of appreciation has grown because I've gotten to see VBS through the eyes of my own child, and so to each and every one of you that served in whatever capacity, from a father, I wanna say thank you for what you did. But secondly, I also wanna celebrate something awesome at VBS, that every year at VBS, we give these elementary age students an opportunity to make a difference in the global community. This year, They were given opportunity to impact people in need in Haiti. Now $10 would feed an entire family for an entire year, which is crazy to think about. So on their own, our elementary age students by the end of the week raised over $3,600. That's gonna take care of 360 families. And again, we celebrate this because it goes to show no matter what age you are, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it is not a JV or a less than, it is God's Holy Spirit which transforms everything, amen? Inside your program, you got a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along this time of teaching, also a great tool to jot down anything the Spirit might be prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray, we're going to dive right in. Jesus, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for your mercy. We want to thank you for your provision. We want to thank you for your passion. We want to thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We want to thank you for your love for us, which is unfathomable, that even when we didn't deserve it, you fought, you taught, you loved, you sacrificed all things so that we could be a restored creation Father, thank you that in that first beautiful act of repentance, when we gave our lives to you, you started a lifelong and eternal journey with us, that every day you're teaching us how to be more and more like you. And so as we have sung these songs, which declare beautiful truths about who you are, as we open up your word, which is living and active, Father, we know that you are already speaking. So as your church, we are committed to listening to what you have to say. As I often say, Jesus, as the communicator, let me become less, and let you as our King, as our Christ, as our Lord, become much, much more. In the precious name of Jesus, we all said, amen. So this morning, we're going to go ahead and continue the series we've been in for the last four weeks or so, and the series is called Unfiltered, the Audience of One. And the heart behind this series is pretty simple, that when it comes to Jesus, many of us have a tendency to see Jesus through a series of filters, whether it's cultural filters, religious filters, filters from our own experiences that distort who Jesus is, what he said, and what it means to follow him. So throughout this series, what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to remove those filters, and we're hoping to capture some new, some true images of Jesus by going back to the first century, to one of the earliest written accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, and that's the gospel according to Matthew in our New Testament. Now, we are in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave, and it's arguably the most famous recorded teaching in the history of our world. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that he is laying out what we've been calling his kingdom vision for our lives. At Rocky Peak, we often say that God has an epic vision for your life. This is what he's talking about through the Sermon on the Mount, and his vision for your life is one of righteousness, that as the restored people of God, his vision and his leading is that you would lead a life of righteousness. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasts what that means, that he's not talking about a negative, a fake religious righteousness that many of the religious leaders had at the time of Jesus. It's not a superficial righteousness. It's not one that's solely dependent on tradition. It's not one that minimizes or distorts the teachings of Scripture, but rather a real righteousness is one that is found in transformation. Righteousness is all about us in our one-on-one rhythm of relationship being transformed to be more and more like the character of Jesus. And so in chapter six of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives us these three pictures of what righteousness looks like. We looked at the first one a couple of weeks ago when it came to giving and our finances. Now today, we're going to continue the dialogue on the second picture that Michael started last week, and that's on the topic of prayer. And so if you remember, last week Michael talked about the state of our heart. There on the front of your note sheet, I put a quote that was a key thought from last week's message. And it says this, when you you think of prayer you need to think in terms of relationship with God rather than religious ritual. And so building off of that, what's gonna happen now in the words of Jesus is using that as our foundation, he is now going to give us a model for what our prayer lives can look like, a model of a transformed prayer. And so there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you got a section titled The Disciple's Model, and if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Now, as a quick recap to last week, let's go ahead and start at verse 5, and let's read through the verses that Michael walked us through last week. So in it, it says, And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And again, this is a quick recap that what Jesus isn't doing, we talked about this last week, is He's not condemning public prayers, He's also not condemning long prayers. What Jesus is doing is He's asking us to examine when it comes to our prayer life, what is the state of your heart? Why do you pray? Do you pray for superficial reasons? Do you pray because you feel obligated? Do you pray to impress other people, to manipulate other people, to try to earn some type of favor? Or do you pray for what we've been calling about the audience of one? Do you pray to know God more? To be transformed by it? So that was what we talked about last week. Now building off of that foundation, that's what a relationship through prayer is all about. Now Jesus is going to give us a model. It is a very famous model about how to pray, but I want you to see that he continues this state of your heart. And this model that he gives us is rooted in identity. When it comes to how to pray, the model Jesus gives us is to root our heart in a new view of identity. And throughout this prayer, we're going to see a new, bigger view of who God is, Because of that, a new bigger view of how he sees us and a new bigger view of how we interact with people around us. And so with that, let's go ahead and keep reading the words of Jesus. In verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, as I talk about the fact that the heart of our prayers is rooted in identity, Jesus begins his model by a declaration of both who God is unfiltered and who we are as a result of this. So let's look at what he had to say. The first way that he declares God's identity is by referring to him as our father. And again, we talked about this last week, that the word that is used is Abba, which is a warm, intimate relationship, which is similar to a child calling out for their father. And so for us to refer to God as our Abba means that we have a personal, a parental relationship with him. That because of that, to be in prayer with our Abba means to experience the warmth, the intimacy, and the security that comes through his fatherhood in our lives. And what's beautiful about Jesus modeling this for us is that Jesus is the unique son of God. And so by modeling this, he is inviting us to share in the special relationship of a father with their son or their daughter. And so the second thing that Jesus uses to declare identity is in saying, hallowed be your name. That word means to be holy, to set apart, but it also means to revere, to respect, to treat with the highest honor. In fact, this is a beautiful part of Jewish culture and Jewish faith is that they often strove to treat God with the highest honor. And this concept of name is key, because in the ancient world, your name, the name of someone carried a lot of weight, because it wasn't simply something that sounded good. When I think about naming my three kids, I didn't think about the meaning of their names, I thought about what sounded good with our last name. But when you were named at the time of Jesus in particular, it was more to be an aspiration that your name had specific characteristics that you were hoping to raise a child to be. And so what's interesting with that, because again, this is often an afterthought in our culture. Have you ever looked up the meaning of your name? Have you ever seen what your name means? And then have, in some of you, you've experienced this, but is that descriptive of who you are or who you've been raised to be? So let me give you this example. Yesterday, for the first time in 36 years, I looked up the meaning of my name. It was not something I had ever had at the forefront, so I looked up my name, Andres, which is what Dre is a nickname of. And you guys know my humor, you guys are like to joke. Let me read you the description, and I am not making this up. This is the actual meaning of my name. A born warrior who is manly and brave. Not too shabby, right? Good job, mom and dad. But here's the big difference between me and names in the ancient world. That is the farthest from the truth of who I am. And I can prove that, simply put, that a few days ago, there was a spider in my house. And I wish I could tell you that it was a giant one pound jumping tarantula, but it was no bigger than my fingernail. And these are minions of the Antichrist. And my response to this spider was anything but manly and brave. I am not representing my name well. And so again, we need to understand that to say hallowed be your name means that we are celebrating that the name of the Lord refers to his character. It refers to his power. It refers to his status as creator. It refers to his ability to save. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel tells Mary and Joseph, you will name this child Jesus because he will save. And so again, what's wonderful in this model that Jesus gives us is to say hallowed be your name, to revere it means to not only acknowledge who God is, the bigness of God, but to do this regularly in our prayer life in any other aspect is to submit to that identity, is to submit to that power, is to obey God our Father, to use Rocky Peak language, to revere the name of God is to regularly learn how to listen and follow the leading of our Father in our life. And so we continue with Jesus' model. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, there's a declaration of identity here that God, who we revere, is the head of this new kingdom. And to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is to pray for God to take action. In other words, is to pray for transformation to happen because that is what happens when individuals or when our world comes in contact with the kingdom of God. The kingdom transforms it and changes everything about it. About it. And it's wonderful because it's both at the same time a future-focused prayer that one day Jesus will return and establish his eternal kingdom, but it's also a present-focused prayer that Jesus is here and in the person and work of Jesus, he has brought with him his kingdom. And so we see God's identity, our Father is the head of this kingdom, but again, this prayer is also a declaration of who we now are as the response restored sons and daughters of the king, we are part of the kingdom of God. If you were with us when we talked about this in pursuing God, when we pray your kingdom come, it is to partner with the king to do the work of the kingdom. And what's amazing about that is this is a reminder that because we are part of the kingdom, because we have been transformed, our lives, you are living proof. You are a living testimony that the kingdom of God is real, that the kingdom of God changes everything, and the kingdom of God can change others just like it changed us. And so again, we see this through our prayers as a declaration of identity. And so then we go to the next one, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so this idea of daily bread means that as God's children, we go into a joyful daily dependence on him to meet our needs, both our physical needs, but also, and more importantly, our spiritual needs. And understand something, to go into a daily posture of asking God to provide for my needs is to needs is to be with him daily, is to engage daily in that relationship, is to daily learn more about his character as father, as provider, as king, as creator, is to learn more about his provision and power. And the more we are in the presence of God, the more we trust in the character and identity of God. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor over on the East Coast, and he's actually teaching through the Sermon on the Mount as well. And when he taught on this point, I liked how he put it, and I want to share the analogy, is that often our temptation is that when we go to God in prayer, we want him to answer our prayers in what he calls a Costco-sized bundle. So think about it. When you go to Costco, you're buying in bulk, right? Right? And when I go to Costco, I'm not only buying in bulk, but I'm trying to buy enough so that I can put the most amount of time between when I need to return. I'm trying to buy enough to put the most space between me and the demolition derby that is Costco and the cards as possible. And sometimes we go to God and we say, God, give me the next 10 years, give me the next 20 years, give me the next 30 years. And if God were to answer that, the temptation would be that we wouldn't be in relationship with God until we needed another answer. Once a decade. And this beauty of this daily dependence, why Jesus models, is that we are built to be in the presence of God each and every day. We are built to know him and we are built to enjoy him and learn this, that the fact that Jesus calls us to be in God's presence each and every day reveals that the Father enjoys you. The Father enjoys spending time with you and communing with you. And then he goes on to say and forgive us our debts. And so this is an aspect of that daily dependence. These debts, these are our sins, our rebellion against God. And I love the metaphor, the picture that he uses through that word is because of our sins, we have a debt that needs to be paid that we cannot pay on our own. And the only one that can provide us freedom from that debt is God himself through the work and power of Jesus. Now again, what I love about this is this is part of daily communication. When I first gave my life to Jesus through a beautiful act of repentance, that was not the only time in my life that I needed forgiveness that I needed him to restore me, that I needed him to discipline and to correct my path. But also, by using this as a model for us, by reminding us that we pray in that identity, the Lord is calling us to take a proactive stance when it comes to our sins. Too often when it comes to sin and asking for forgiveness, we wait for the sins to completely blow up in our face. We wait for it to get really bad, or for it to get exposed, or for us to have hurt other people through it. And this is a new paradigm, because what we're doing is, again, by trusting God to regularly forgive us, we are declaring identity. We are saying that you are forgiver, and you are father. We are saying that I am your child, and the most important thing in my life is my relationship with you. We are acknowledging that sin is what separates me from the presence of the Father. Sin is what creates roadblocks for me enjoying and entering into that presence. And by regularly asking the Lord to remove this, we are saying you matter so much that I want nothing to get in the way of our relationship." And so we take on a proactive stance to enjoy the father more. And then he continues and he said, as we have also forgiven others. And what's beautiful is this is practical and aspirational that as transformed sons and daughters, we've been transformed to reflect the presence of God. We've been transformed to reflect the character of Jesus. And so part of that change is how we see others. We're going to see them with a gratitude as someone who is forgiven. I will strive to live that out in my life as well. Just as God can love and forgive, he will empower his children to do the same. Now we're going to unpack that more a little bit later. But then he goes on in verse 13. And he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Again, a declaration of identity of who God is and who we are. That we are saying, your relationship is my priority. And when it comes to temptations that we all face, when it comes to trials and testing, we are asking God to deliver us. Because again, we are acknowledging his power. See, we don't sit here and hope in a blind faith that God will defeat the enemy in the end. We sit here in confidence as Christ followers that the cross of Jesus and his empty tomb triumphed over the enemy for all of eternity. And so when it comes to our temptation, those areas that we feel weak, we as dependent children go to the Lord and we say as the one true God who defeated death, defeated sin, and defeated the enemy, give me what I need as my provider to look past this and to choose light instead of darkness. And then what's really interesting is then Jesus goes back to this topic of forgiveness as he finishes this model. In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so we need to clarify a couple things that are going on here. Jesus is not saying that our salvation is based on works. We have been saved by the grace and mercy and love of Jesus, regardless of the fact that we didn't earn it. And so this isn't talking about the fact that we could have paid off that debt or we could have earned it. But again, it's going back to the heart of prayer, which is transformation. That if we are truly being transformed, we will start to resemble the character of God. And one of the biggest, one of the most key areas that people can see that is in the area Of forgiveness, because in our sin, we rarely forgive, but as part of the kingdom, we now adopt God's heart to show His mercy. In fact, forgiveness is a great litmus test for if we're accepting or resisting transformation in our lives. And so, again, this fits the model of prayer because the whole Lord's Prayer has been all about transformation. And that's the heart of prayer. And so that's our passage today. And so what I want to do with the time we have left is I want to continue to unpack this heart. And I want to look at how that practically applies in our prayer life. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, The One Core Truth. And your fill-in is this. The heart of prayer is a transformed identity. The heart of prayer is a transformed identity. Prayer is transformational. Now some of us know that because we pray for things to change. We pray for circumstances to change. We pray for provision to happen. We pray for change in people's lives or change to happen in our world and that is a beautiful aspect of our prayer relationship. But one thing we don't often realize is one of the main purposes of prayer is not just to change the world around us, but to change the world around us by changing us first, by changing the core of our character. And how we are changed is by being rooted in identity. See, when Jesus comes into our lives and he transforms us from the inside out, he changes so ma- he changes everything about us. But one key area that he changes is our sight, is how we now see the world and how we now see him. And what he does is he expands our sight to understand an unfiltered identity of who God is and who I am as a result of his identity. See, back in May, a couple months ago, I was up here teaching on a similar topic. And some of you might remember that I was, ta- I was teaching out of uh, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this isn't in your note sheet, but I love the way he prayed over those Christ followers. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See, remember, biblically, heart doesn't simply mean emotions. Heart is your core character the very soul of your identity and so to pray for the lord to change our heart is for him to change our core character and so what he's saying through this prayer is christ followers i pray that your core character would be transformed by the light and the truth of jesus and we say the truth of what identity the truth of who God is, and the truth of who you now are because of it, that we would begin to see prayer as transformational in our relationship with God, that when we go into the posture of prayer, we experience the identity of God, the unfiltered identity. We experience rest in that identity. We discover more of God's identity in our lives. And then when we ask, and then when we petition, which is a beautiful part of that relationship we do so that is the overflow out of our view of god's identity the heart of prayer is a transformed identity i like a couple quotes there on your note sheet first from a scholar named michael wilkins prayer is much about changing us our character, our will, and our values, even while we seek God's response. Second quote by Tim Keller, God does not merely require our petitions, but ourselves. And no one who begins the hard, lifelong trek of prayer knows yet who they are. Nothing but prayer will ever reveal you to yourself, because only before God can you see and become your true self. Would you underline that last statement? Because only before God can you see and become your true self. The heart of having a thriving prayer life is not your words, is not your posture, is not your tradition. The heart of prayer is rooted in identity of who God is and who we are as a result of that. And so with that being our foundation, what I want to do is let's talk practically a couple of areas in which this, this model that Jesus gave us shapes our prayer life. And so specifically, if that heart of identity is our foundation, there are three core areas of that foundation that we want to begin to root our prayers in. So there in you know, a you've got a section titled, Prayer, Building a New Foundation. And the first aspect of the foundation is this, who God is. who God is. Our prayer life begins with how we view God. Our prayer life begins and the foundation of it is how we understand the identity of God. And so the question is, do you have a big or do you have a small view of God? And so let's do some rhetorical reflection in your own heads. I want you to examine your recent prayer life. Think about your prayer life over the last couple of days or even the last week. Think about what you prayed for. Think about how you prayed. Think about the emotions you felt. Think about the words you use. And the question I want to ask you is what does your prayer life reveal about how you see God? What does your prayer life reveal about how important God is in your life? What does your prayer life reveal about how big or powerful you see God of, what you see, how, what you see Him to be capable of? What does your prayer life reveal about how you understand God's relationship with you to be? Now, if you're wondering if you have a small view of God based on your prayer life, here's a couple markers that show us that we have a smaller view than what we're called to. The first one is if you say your prayer life is infrequent, it doesn't happen that often. Maybe it happens once a day because that's kind of the traditional way of doing it, but for many of us it only happens when we think about it or in some cases when we feel like we have a clearly defined reason why we should pray. That's a marker of having a small view. Another marker of having a small view is that our prayer life is not enjoyable. It's not something we tend to enjoy doing for various reasons in fact for many of us that's why it's infrequent maybe it feels cold or foreign or weird maybe we don't understand if we're doing it right for some of us it's not enjoyable because of insecurities that we worry we're going to do it wrong that God is not going to hear our prayers that he is disappointed with how we do it for some of us it's be, some of us a marker that we have a small view of God through our prayer life Is that our prayer life is mostly, if not solely, transactional. I talk to God when I want something. I talk to God when I need something. And then the next time I talk to God is either because I need something else or I'm upset with his timetable with giving me what I asked for in the first place. For some of us, we have a small view of God in our prayer life because we never pray for transformation. We don't pray for the world to be transformed, but we don't pray for ourselves to be transformed. And we could keep going on and on with different examples, but remember, wherever you're at today, the encouragement of the Lord is that you are built to have a thriving prayer life, a thriving relationship with him. And it's not built on your words. It's not built on your perfection. It's built on the identity of God. And so if we want to pray well, it begins with expanding our view of God the Father and thinking big things about him. Let me illustrate it in this way. So um, not that long ago, I was doing just like a simple workout in my home. And when I say simple workout, that's two to five push push-ups. And I was doing this workout and my six-year-old, my oldest, saw me doing that. And he comes up to me and with the sincerity that only a six-year-old can have, he says, Daddy, you are the strongest daddy ever, right? Even in my cold, dead heart, that felt really, really good. (laughs) But at the same time, I also felt some terror, because it's not true. And you know it's not true because you're looking at me. I'm not the tallest of individuals, short people unite. Soaking wet, I weigh about a buck 50. Having been at VBS, I guarantee you, there were certain third graders that could take me in a fair fight. But what was encouraging about this is that my son believes big things about me. My son has a big view of who I am and what I'm capable of. And what's beautiful about this is this is how we are to approach our prayer life. That when we go to pray to our Father, we are praying to Abba. We are praying to our Father who is big, who is powerful, who is creator, and who is presence. And as we look at the model of Jesus, he gave us two specific characteristics about God that we base our prayer life around and that we can enjoy. And these aren't in your notes but I'd like you to write these down. The first one is this, that our God is personal. That's what's meant by him being our father is that he is not distant. He is not uncaring. But when he views each and every one of us, he sees us through a beautiful parental commitment. And so understand that your father loves you. Your father came to this earth to die to restore you. Your father supports you. Your father calls you to be more than what you see right now. Your father transforms you as I said earlier your father enjoys spending time with you and so how do we pray in this way well I go back to what Paul had said open the eyes of my heart let my heart become enlightened and so think about this in your prayer life simply put it goes God open the eyes of my heart that I can see you as my father God, open the eyes of my heart to understand deeper what it means that I am your child. God, open the eyes of my heart to understand that you are not like my earthly father, good, bad, or anything in between, but you are a perfect father. God, open the eyes of my heart to not only value this relationship more, but to learn to enjoy my fatherly relationship with you more. That's the first characteristic Jesus gave us in his model. The second is this, powerful. That our father is powerful. Our father is king. He is unmatched. And so what that means in our prayer life is that we root ourselves in that part of his identity. And so we declare your kingdom is here. We declare what you've done. And so what does this practically look like in prayers? Like we said earlier, open the eyes of my heart for me to see your power at work in my life open the eyes of my heart to see your power at work in our world even in the darkest of places open the eyes of my heart to not only see your power at work but to be a child that declares my father is strong My Father is powerful. Open the eyes of my heart to celebrate your power in my life and in my world. Open the eyes of my heart to be able to point others to your power, to be an encouragement that just as your power is at work in my life, it can be at work in your life as well. And so when it comes to prayer, our first stop on that foundation is rooting our hearts in the identity of God the Father. I like how in the Old Testament it's put there from Micah in your note sheet. All of the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of our Lord, our God, forever and ever. So the second aspect of of our foundation I want to highlight is this. Who we now are. as we begin to have an unfiltered view of God the Father, that now removes the filters for how we see our identity. And again, this goes back to the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, what we've been talking about, that the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is righteous, that God's call, His vision on your life is that you would live a life of righteousness. There in your note sheet, I like how it's put in 1 Peter, But you, and yes, this is talking about you, Christ follower, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light this is how God sees his children. And what's beautiful about this is that this is not a negative view, is it? This is a very high view. God doesn't see you and go, okay, I'll let you in, but you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be one of the real Christ followers. You know what? I don't even like you, so let's only see each other at family reunions or something like that. That is not how our Father sees us. He sees you as a beloved son and daughter. He has transformed your identity, not so that you become, as I often say, a slightly better version of who you were, but that so now you become a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a life of righteousness. This is God's epic vision for your life. And as his father, he not only casts this vision, but he says, this is where I will lead you if you follow. And so how do we achieve that? Well, again, going back to Jesus' model through our prayer relationship, through dependence. Through this act of dependence. Because why this is so key is that by depending daily on God, we are showing that he has transformed our hearts. He has changed our identity because think about who you were before you gave your life to Jesus. And in fact, this is so strong that for many of us, it is still a constant temptation, even though we are in Jesus, and that's to be in Dependence, that's to do things our own way or to do things on our own strength, intelligence or ingenuity. And here's what I mean by that. Before Jesus came into my life, I understood at a young age that if I wanted to succeed in life, if I wanted to have a good life, if I wanted to have some type of, some measure of success or enjoy riches, I had to do it on my own. And so I needed to make sure I was strong enough, smart enough, good enough. I needed to succeed. I needed to step on other people. My destiny was in my hands. And what ended up happening was I took on the weight of the world. In fact, I took on God-sized expectations and I put them on human shoulders that were never meant to carry that burden. But through this transformation, by embracing that I am now the child of God, he expands my vision that when I was driven to just worry about my life, my vision was way too small. Now I have a vision for the kingdom. Now I wanna live the best life possible that Jesus talks about in John 10.10, 10, and that's living for the kingdom. And to do that, I need God to continually change my heart to to change my identity so I engage in regular, joyful dependence on Him." Think about, again, the model that Jesus gave us. He taught us to pray for the kingdom to come first, for God's will, not my will. That is a heart change. Jesus taught us to depend on him, to not move faster than him, to wait and trust. That is a heart change. Jesus taught us to forgive other people when it hurts, even if it's undeserved. That is a heart change. That is about relinquishing control. And so this new aspect of our prayer life is all about, I acknowledge that God is my Father. And then as His child, a now regular part of my prayer life is asking, where do you want to change my heart? You know, often we pray for circumstances to change. And again, hear me very clearly, that is a beautiful aspect of our prayer lives. We should be praying for circumstances to change. But at the same time, if that's all we pray for, we are missing an opportunity that at times God is not going to change our circumstances because he wants to do something bigger by changing our hearts. And think about this, how this can apply in some common prayer requests that we often have. First of all, take the area of conflict. Many of us, we would say that's one of our regular prayers as we're asking God to take away or to give us wisdom to deal with a type of conflict, whether it's a relational conflict, conflict with friends or families, with spouses, conflict with exes, conflict with our parents or with our children, or maybe it's conflict at school or it's a conflict at work. It's a conflict in whatever area. And again, we pray for these circumstances to change. Those are beautiful prayers. But now think about how your vision will expand if we begin to pray, God, when it comes comes to this conflict, when it comes to the anger, when it comes to this person or this organization or this situation, change my heart to better reflect you. Another key area that we pray for is finances. We pray for provision, provision. We pray for salvation. We pray for uh, wisdom on how to use what God has made us stewards of. And again, imagine the ramifications is, yes, we pray for these circumstances, but we also pray, God, change my heart to reflect you in how I view my finances. Change my heart to have a new peace, to have a new trust, to have a new excitement that you are bigger than this. And so we see when we begin to pray, God, change my heart. We are petitioning, God, change my identity to be more and more like you. Now, that's the second aspect of the foundation that Jesus modeled for us. The third one, your last in, is this, how we now see others. How we now see others So again, let's recap this progression. Our prayers are rooted in seeing the identity of God unfiltered, through that, discovering and embracing our identity in Him, and then becoming His image bearers, becoming a living testimony in how we interact with the people around us. And this changes all of our relationships. This changes our relationship with other Christ followers, that we're not called merely to be people that sit near each other in a service once a week, but we are literally family. Another topic for another time, but we are now part of this new, community that's called the church but it also changes and transforms how we see other people those who have yet to believe or put their faith in Jesus that we don't diminish them but that we see them as people that Jesus loves equally that Jesus died to set them free but also Jesus often in the Sermon on the Mount goes back to a specific category of people and that's our enemies see again look at his model He models for us to regularly be forgiving our debtors. Let's understand what that means. Someone who is a debtor of yours is someone who has sinned against you, is someone who has hurt you, is someone who has caused you strife and frustration, is someone that you would have good reason to be angry towards, is someone you might want to have wrath towards, someone you might want to have a vitriol towards. And what's amazing about this is many times, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asking us that as his children, we would reflect his character when it comes to our enemies, that we would embrace this radical transformation. In fact, there in your note sheet, out of Matthew chapter five, he says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Would you underline that last part? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. So again, think about that relationship of identity. We are raised to reflect God. We are raised to reflect his values, to reflect his character, to reflect his passion. If God is a forgiver, his expectation of his children is to go and forgive as well. We are raised to not hoard his salvation, but to have a gratitude and to extend it as God has extended it to us as well. Now, as we talk about that, let us take a spiritual deep breath and acknowledge this truth. That is hard. That is very hard to do. And it can't be done on our own. It can only be done through the supernatural work of God in your life. On my own, I create division. On my own, I create enemies over big issues, even small issues. Now hear me very clearly. An enemy is not not somebody that we disagree with. In fact, there's often going to be areas where we disagree with people. In fact, there's going to be areas where we passionately disagree with people. There's going to be areas where we passionately disagree with people to protect God's moral truth. Those are all beautiful things. But enemies are the people that we allow our anger and our hate to control us. Enemies are the people that in our disagreements we choose to sin against in our view of them. And so when it comes to forgiving our enemies, again, we create division naturally, but also we understand they've wronged us. How can I forgive them? And the truth of the matter is you're right, you can't. But the work of God through you can And this is a beautiful part about being God's sons and daughters, that not only does he love us with a supernatural, unfathomable love, but he strengthens and equips us to show a hateful world that same love. You know, think I I think about this in the life of Jesus and in how he even called his followers, his disciples that in chapter 9, a little bit ahead of where we are, Jesus goes and he calls Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his followers. And tradition states that this is Matthew, the author of our gospel. Now you need to understand something. If you are one of Jesus' Jewish disciples... If you were one of Jesus' Jewish disciples, then Matthew, you had a lot of reasons for Matthew to be a clear enemy of yours. And there's a couple categories I like to put this in. One, he was a political enemy. To be a tax collector meant that Matthew was working for the Roman government. The Roman government was the government, put it in our terms, the political party that was oppressing the Jewish people, that was trying to eliminate their culture and their faith. And Matthew was a part of that he was now a deeply political enemy second thing is what i call he was a racial enemy the roman empire had this view that if you were not roman you were less than human you would never be good enough and matthew being a jewish man joining the roman team so to speak is basically acknowledging that yeah we aren't good enough and so we need to change or die this is the winning team and i'm going to go into this and third he's what i call an economic enemy he ripped people Pull off. He stole from people. He stole from his fellow Jewish brethren as a tax collector. So think about the wonder of Jesus' love, that in that account in Matthew's gospel, he pursues, he walked up to this tax collector. He said, come and follow me. He restores him, and he teaches his disciples how to not only love and accept him, but how to become family with him. Now think about it. As human beings, if you were one of those disciples, do you think you probably felt some anger towards Matthew joining your team? Do you think you felt some resentment? Do you think, I know I probably would have gone up to Jesus and be like, can we reconsider this? Do you think that there may have been some awkward dinners or lunches as people are sitting there going, hey, Matthew, you ripped off my life savings. Thank you so much for that. But what is Jesus model through this? No one, not even the darkest of individuals, is outside the passion and love of God. And so as we fight in this world, it's something I often say because Christ followers, we need to take this back in a world and in a country that desperately needs this truth. We need to not be a people that fight with sin, that fight with anger, that fight with hate, but we need to be a people that fight rooted in the identity of Jesus, rooted in the love of the Father, rooted. In who we are as children and rooted by fighting through love, truth, and compassion. As Jesus forgives, He will strengthen us to forgive. And so, with that, reflect who is your enemy? If you don't use those words, then who are the people or the organizations that drive you crazy? Who are the individuals? the organizations that just make your blood boil? Who are the people or the organizations that, not to make a joke of it, but you would happily punch in the face? And what is God calling you to do towards them? Again, it doesn't mean that we have to stop disagreeing, necessarily. It doesn't mean that we need to stop passionately disagreeing. But we are called to reflect the character of God first. And one thing that often humbles me when you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels is that the people he showed the most compassion for were the darkest of souls, and the people that he straight yelled at were the religious ones. And so as we... Reflect on the heart of prayer being a transformed identity. I want to ask you one final question. It's not on your note sheet, but as the worship team comes out, I want to ask you, based on what the Lord has said to us today, how will you now go and pray? How will you now go and pray? How will you allow the Lord to transform your prayer life, to expand your view, to see Him in a new way, to see yourself in a new way, to see your capability of loving people in a new way. And so with that, what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna ask you to stay in your seats and we're gonna sing a song over you. And the reason why we've chosen to done that is this song is a beautiful declaration of God's identity. It's a beautiful declaration of God's love for us. And so let this be a time of prayer in which we rest in the identity of God, as well as reflect that this is who he calls us to be based on his identity. And so I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are bigger than we can imagine. Thank you that you expand our vision. Thank you that your view of us is bigger. And so when it comes to our love for you, Jesus, when it comes to who you are transforming us to be, thank you that we can be rooted in our prayer lives to be your child we can be rooted in the unfiltered view of our Father. Thank you for who you are, and as we rest, as this song is sung over us, as we rest in your identity, encourage us, grow us, transform us, Jesus. In your Son's name, amen. Let's stand together. What a beautiful declaration of who God is, right? And so as we go into our final song of worship, as we receive our gifts and offerings, let that be the foundation through which we sing. Let that be the foundation through which we declare that this is who the Father is, and this is who he transforms us, who he empowers us to be. Let's pray. Father, you love us. Father, we are swimming and drowning in your perfect love. Father, your love cuts to the core of our character. It changes us. It transforms us. It gives us new hope and a new purpose where we now reflect you. We are now your son and daughter. We are now a part of your kingdom. We are now empowered to do what we couldn't have done on our own, to see you with a peace, to view our life differently, to forgive even when it's difficult. And as we sing this last song, it's beautifully put that we ask you to continue to open the eyes of our heart, that we could see you and that you would put your heart inside inside of us, that you would transform us, that you would change us, Jesus. We thank you for this community where we can gather as your family to listen to your word, to declare through these songs to say that God is real, that Jesus has brought the kingdom into play, that we are living proof of that, and that we are inviting others to join that kingdom and find that restoration. Jesus, thank you for the gifts and offerings we're going to receive. Thank you for how you continue to faithfully fund what you want to do here at Rocky Peak. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In your son's name, everybody said, amen. That was incredible. Thanks, friends. You know that last song is so beautiful because it declares what we've been talking about, the heart of prayer. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart. And so Rocky Peak, as we leave, that is our privilege, to be able to pray in that truth, that our prayers are rooted in identity, in the identity of God the Father, in the identity of who, you've trans- who He's transformed you to be, and to be able to show that identity and character in our thoughts and actions. And so as we leave this place, let us be a people that are praying mighty prayers, transformational prayers for the world to change, but also for our souls to change, for our our character to change, that no matter what is going on outside of us, we will continually pray to become more and more like God the Father. Amen? Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, in either venue, Worship Center or The Ridge, alongside the wall to my right are some amazing men and women who'd love to pray for you. Michael's going to be here next week. We're going to be continuing this, uh, this our series, continuing the topic of righteousness. Hope you can join us then. Love you, Rocky Peak. Have a great week.